You are listening to Heart Sounds from the Pulse of Cardiology. Hello there, I'm Shelley Wood, and this is the Heart Sounds podcast for February 2017. Heart Sounds is a monthly recap of some of the interesting conversations we've been having behind the scenes at TCTMD in order to put together the news. I hope you got January's podcast where we look back at some common New Year's resolutions and their impact on cardiovascular health. February, as far as I'm concerned, is the month where I come to my senses and realize that I already lead a pretty healthy life, and any over-the-top resolutions I might have adopted in January were really just penance for whatever I did or didn't do in December. In cardiology, of course, February is the first month of the year when everyone really plunges back into the annual meeting cycle. This month, TCTMD reporters were on the ground at the International Symposium on Endovascular Therapy, or ICET, in Florida, the CRT meeting in Washington, D.C., and the International Stroke Conference in Houston, Texas. This year, it was TCTMD's Caitlin Cox at the ICET meeting. If your interests lie in endovascular interventions, you'll want to check out all of Caitlin's coverage. This included new technology and approaches for SFA lesions, the future of carotid stenting, the mounting interest in acute pulmonary embolism, and much more. TCTMD also has a large database of slide sets from the ICET meeting. Caitlin's final story from ICET looked at some early work addressing the possibility of using bioresorbable scaffolds in peripheral artery disease. Of course, these dissolving devices had a roller coaster year in the coronaries in 2016. The absorbed GT1 BVS got FDA approval last summer for CAD, but also faced growing concerns over stent thrombosis. At ICET, several presentations looked at the appeal of a disappearing stent in the peripherals, but also the unique hurdles posed by this territory. Michael Dake reviewed some of the key hurdles any such devices will face in the periphery, namely concerns over inflammation, embolization of material, and the unknown duration of support that would be needed in a vessel like the superficial femoral or iliac artery. Caitlin also spoke with Juan Granada, another presenter during this ICET session, who summarized some of the appeal of the bioresorbable stent in PAD, as well as the formidable challenges they face. Here's Granada. In the peripheral territory, there is a very strong feeling that the therapies should minimize the use of permanent implants. I mean, number one is because disease progression is very aggressive, because, you know, putting a super long stance in, in the SFA and below the knee in multiple vascular territories doesn't sound that appealing. And people do want to get away with leaving nothing behind. Now, the problem is with balloons, you end up with recoil. With balloons, you actually end up actually using additional stents if the sections are created, and you cannot avoid the use of a stents whatsoever. With the stents, the problem is you are committing, you know, a permanent implant in a, in a vascular territory. That, so there is no really perfect world. So bioresorbable scaffolds, I mean, in a way, do bring the best of both worlds. You know, the beautiful scaffold effect acutely, you know, lumen preservation, maintaining lumen over time, but then disappearing as, as the vessel remodels. So, yeah, I mean, I really think that it brings something different and appealing to the interventional uh, community mm-hmm. But uh, there is a lot of things that need to be proven, okay. right? You know, the, 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 the profile of the devices, the wall thickness of the devices and potential for thrombogenicity, biomechanical issues that actually can produce higher risk stenosis rates and all these potential issues with biomechanical fractures, or biomechanical failures. Bioresorbable scaffolds, they have actually achieved uh, a mechanical strength acutely that is comparable to metallic uh, scaffolds. But the problem is when it comes down to very, very um, tough 
vascular territories, like for example the distal SFA, the potential for fracture is very high, as it happens also in the coronary. So one of the biggest challenges of uh, bioresorbable scaffolds is to be able to maintain mechanical strength in uh, areas in which biomechanical stress is very, very, very high. And that's, I think, for me, the biggest challenge of these technologies in the peripheral vascular territory. When I was pulling together this podcast, Michael O'Riordan was putting the finishing touches on a range of stories he wrote on some of the hottest topics in interventional cardiology from CRT. These included updates from the transcatheter mitral valve studies, new insights into bioresorbable scaffolds in coronary disease, as well as a story looking at the risks of triple therapy in patients with atrial fibrillation undergoing transcatheter aortic valve implantation. The one I want to tell you about here is a study looking at the use of a suspended lead curtain as well as robotic PCI to cut down on radiation exposure during coronary interventions. You'll have to read Mike's story to hear just how well these two strategies fared in terms of cutting down radiation risks. But the audio I want to play for you is part of Mike's interview with Lorenzo Azzolini, who commented on that study for Mike. In this clip, Azzolini starts by telling Mike just how much the research into the effects of cath lab radiation is lagging behind other advances in this field. Then he goes on to explain what he and his colleagues are doing to reduce their exposure. If you, like me, didn't make it to CRT this year, this conversation will make you feel like you've been dropped right in the corridors of the meeting, which is my way of saying, yes, you'll hear a bit of background noise. I would compare this, this um, issue here, this topic, as we were with Stent 25 years ago. Right. So we're very um, uh, behind with research in, in Do you field. guys at your labs, do you use the shields at all? Like how do you guys counteract the, the effects? So we have a skirt, mm-hmm. a lead skirt here. Mm-hmm. Then we have um, a lead glass that we put uh, it's partially uh, made of glass and right. partially like another skirt we put on top of the patient. Okay. So in my cath lab, uh, we tend to favor left rail because it's easier, it's more similar to, to femoral, to, for fellows especially. Okay. But it's very uncomfortable for your back, right. but especially because you, if, especially if you're short and the patient is obese, right. you need to lean on the patient like this. Right. So And this increases radiation exposure to your peripheral a lot. And right. But there is no data. I don't think there is any study comparing left or radial axis as far as radiation exposure is concerned, mm-hmm. maybe with femoral. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't use the the, the pad uh, that is put on on this area here of the uh, of the of the patient. Okay. Like on the lower uh, abdomen and and, and groins, so we right. don't use that. Right. Uh, but that also, I think, my understanding is that it would be useful because you know scatter radiation also comes from the abdomen. Right. And um, yeah, I think much more should should be done, especially yeah. with uh, with uh, operators uh, training. Sure. And, uh, and knowledge of the problem. Especially, I noticed that my se- more senior colleague um, neglect the problem at all. Right. And and as as young younger and you junior operator are much more attentive. Yeah. So I think it's a, a culture problem. Todd Neal is covering the stroke meeting for us again this year. He's in Houston, Texas right now. If you're itching to learn more about stroke, you'll have to head over to TCTMD to read about it because I didn't have any audio from ISC in time for this month's podcast. Instead, I'll tell you about another study Todd wrote a few weeks ago, looking at public reporting of PCI outcomes. 
This is another one of those hot-button issues we write about pretty regularly on TCTMD. Public reporting, of course, was introduced as a way to increase transparency, improve consumer choice, and boost the use of best practices by hospitals and physicians. These lofty goals, however, have some drawbacks. The primary concern is that physicians may be hesitant to treat high-risk patients for fear of having black marks added to their public report cards. The study Todd covered was a paper by Edward Hannon and colleagues, which zeroed in specifically on how the state of New York reports or excludes outcomes for patients with cardiogenic shock. Researchers looked at different ways to model for the exclusion of refractory and non-refractory shock in public reports and a model that included these patients. What they found was that all three models identified roughly the same number of hospitals or physicians as outliers, that is, with mortality rates higher or lower than the statewide average. What was interesting, however, was that the people or places identified as outliers were not the same between the different models. In the opinion of the authors, the best single measure of PCI quality is the risk-adjusted mortality of non-shock patients, but of course this issue is far from settled. Todd spoke with Saripal Bangalore, who makes the point that no matter what model you use, public reporting of PCI outcomes, as it's done now, cannot escape the problem of capturing deaths that really have nothing to do with the procedure. This argument will no doubt strike a chord with some of you. Have a listen to Bangalore. You know, my thoughts on public reporting is it's a very narrow focus on, um, on an outcome which is tied to a procedure. You know, after, after you do a PCI, the patient can die of five different ways. One is you do a crappy procedure and the patient dies on the table. That's a procedural-related event. Or you do a beautiful procedure, the patient uh, is discharged, crosses the street, uh, has a car accident and dies. Second way of dying. Third way of dying, patient goes home, is very non-compliant, stop taking all their medication, has a stent thrombosis and they die. And fourth way is you have a patient who's really, really uh, sick, patient who have cardiogenic shock, uh, whose risk of mortality is 100% with, without the procedure, and maybe reduces to 50% with the procedure, but there is still a 50% chance. So you do a beautiful procedure, but the patient doesn't make it. The problem with the public reporting currently is it's tying an event to the procedure, not considering everything else that's around it. So in other words, it's not actually looking at process of care. And if somebody outside looks at these reported numbers, all of these four or five ways of dying is equated the same. In essence, only the first one is actually related to the procedure. The rest four uh, scenarios I just described has nothing to do with the procedure, but it's counted exactly the same way. Okay, I think that's enough interventional news for this podcast, although of course there's plenty more where that came from. You know where to find it. Let's look now at yet another guidance document that hit the internet this month, this one looking at periprocedural use of non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants, or NOACs. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, didn't we already get a quote-unquote decision pathway on this topic from the ACC last month? You did indeed. This month, however, the American Heart Association waded into the conversation with its own scientific statement. The document is not formal guidelines, the authors are quick to point out. There are no formal classes of recommendation or level of evidence provided in this statement. Lead author Amish Raval describes some of the salient points to Yael, emphasizing that despite the other documents out there, there is very little in the way of practical advice as to how to use NOACs in certain predicaments. As such, the new AHA document was really intended to be a practical guide as to how to manage patients who have a bleed on these agents or patients who are at very high risk for bleeding. 
Here's Raval giving a bit of an overview as to how this document addresses those two groups, starting with patients who are actively having a life-threatening bleed. Every institution who manages patients on these drugs, uh, especially those who have acute care, critical care type environments, should really develop protocols that work for them. Uh, that include a multidisciplinary team of individuals, um, including uh, cardiology, uh, hematology, pharmaco- pharmacy, um, you know, the, the surgical trauma teams, uh, uh, neurology, neurosurgery, and so on and so forth. That's outlined in the document. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think uh, to have kind of an agreed-upon pathway to manage patients who are bleeding uh, allows for more rapid responses and uh, more um, algorithmic approaches to that. And we've put together in there a suggested um, table that uh, outlines a, a suggested pathway that people could use as a, as a template. And so that's really on the life-threatening bleeding. For the um, at-risk populations, I think it's a matter of, um, you know, understanding the pharmacology of these drugs, goes back to knowing the creatinine clearance and when these things should be held in advance of uh, procedures um, and so on and how to manage these patients, you know, when you're converting things. And I think we've put together a nice table uh, with that I'm going to wrap up this podcast with a study covered by Laura McEwen published earlier this month in Circulation. This study joins a series of papers published in the past year that are serving to illuminate some of the different professional challenges faced by men and women who choose a career in cardiology. This time around, Daniel Blumenthal and colleagues looked at faculty rank differences between male and female cardiologists working in academia in the U.S., Rather than summing this up for you, I'll let Laura set the stage. Here she is posing her question to Dr. Blumenthal. You know, at TCTMD, we've covered a number of papers in the last few years. Some of them were showing wage gaps between male and female cardiologists Mm -hmm. and some other evidence of professional discrimination, like pressure to take less maternity leave. So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what looking at male and female cardiologists from a perspective of academic rank adds to this whole picture. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, so the broader question here is, are men and women in academic cardiology and cardiology generally treated equally as workers? Are they rewarded equally for the work that they do? And and the rewards can take one of many forms. It can be salary, it can be leadership positions, or it could be promotion. And in academic medicine, you know, professorship or academic rank is one of the major rewards that we receive for the work that we do. And so I think it adds meaningfully to this kind of broader question about whether or not we have equality across genders in the workplace in academic cardiology and, as I said, cardiology generally. This is the first paper that we are aware of to look at sex differences in faculty rank in academic cardiology. We, you know, included a a comprehensive uh, sample of academic cardiologists from a very contemporary data set. Our study included more than 3,800 U.S. cardiologists at 109 medical schools as of November of 2014. And we were able to adjust for a comprehensive array or a very wide array of factors that have been shown to influence academic rank and promotion in um, academic settings. Um, and, And even after doing that, we found that women um, in academic cardiology were 37% less likely to be full professors than men.
There was one curious thing that emerged in the survey by Blumenthal and colleagues that might be particularly interesting to TCTMD's core audience. Let me play a tiny bit more of this audio. One of the interesting findings was that being an interventional cardiologist was actually, you know, after adjustment for all of these factors was associated with a significant increase in the likelihood of being a full professor. The odds of being a full professor um, if you were an interventional cardiologist relative to a non-invasive cardiologist were about 1.4, meaning that they were about 40% higher. There's a 40% increase in the odds of, of being a full professor. And, and you also see that among associate and full professors, the likelihood of being a full professor if you were an interventional cardiologist was again about 1.4 mm-hmm. um, um, or 40% higher. So that's, a, I think, a, you know, an unexpected finding, one that you know, certainly would be, you know, would please a lot of interventional cardiologists, I would suspect. Um, And and I I don't know why that is. Um, (laughs) I wish I had an explanation. You know, one potential explanation is uh, that there may be rewards for the kinds of work that they do, which go beyond pure financial rewards, Mm -hmm. Um, meaning, you know, they are a more select group of people. There's fewer of them. I, I don't know whether, you know, whether professorship is being used as an auxiliary source of reward, you know, for the work that they do. That's a pretty good note to end on, no? Thanks for tuning in to the Heart Sounds podcast. I hope to see some of you in person at the ACC meeting, which heads back to Washington, D.C. next month. I and the entire TCTMD editorial team will be on the ground bringing you what we boldly believe will be the best, most timely coverage of the meeting. We'll have a preview of what to expect at ACC on the website in the next week or so. We already know we'll be getting the full results from Furrier. That's the massive cardiovascular outcomes trial for evolocumab, looking at patients at high risk of a cardiovascular event. Furrier, it was announced last month, has met its primary and secondary endpoints, showing that compared with patients taking a statin alone, patients taking a statin plus the new PCSK9 inhibitor significantly reduce the risk of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, hospitalization for unstable angina, or coronary revascularization. There are a number of other interesting trials in interventional cardiology as well. We'll see the primary results from Sertavi, testing the core valve in aortic stenosis patients at intermediate risk for surgery. On the coronary front, we're getting the two-year outcomes from Absorb 3, as well as three studies zeroing in on FFR and IFR during coronary revascularization. If you'll be at ACC and have work you think we should be covering, drop me a line and give me a heads up. You can find emails for me and all the other TCTMD reporters on the website, or find us on Twitter. If you know someone who should be listening to the Heart Sounds podcast and isn't, well, that's a real shame, and you should do something about it. We also have two other podcasts on TCTMD. These are Talking Points and TCT Radio. A new episode of one of our programs is live every Wednesday. Heart Sounds will be back at the end of March. Thanks for listening.